So this morning, we're going to go over Psalm 23, but before I do that, I want to I come clean on a couple things. The first of which is, there have been times in my life where I've found sermons maybe just the teeniest bit boring. I'm not, as it turns out, an auditory learner, and I blame sleep apnea, but I have vivid memories of my mother shaking her shoulder or elbowing me to keep me asleep during sermons, more recent memories of my wife doing many of the same things. And that's not to speak ill of Chuck or of preaching. Preaching is biblical, Chuck is a good preacher. Sometimes it's just hard. And when you're, when you're talking on a familiar topic, a familiar passage, there's that tendency to tune out after we hit the intro. I hope you won't do that this morning. But my, my, the way to solve that for me typically when I'm teaching was to make sure that there was a gotcha moment, to make sure that there was something that was going to hook you in the end and I was going to surprise you. And I was going to show my worth as a teacher by hitting you with something you didn't see coming and showing you just how brilliant I am. There was a YouTube video a number of years ago that's been copied and reproduced. We actually had a painting hanging back here for a while that was done in a similar fashion where a street performer had a huge canvas and in black and white is painting furiously. And all the while, you can't make out what it is. At least I couldn't because I'm not that bright. But couldn't make out what it is, couldn't make out what it is. And he finishes and throws the paintbrushes down and you're still going, well, I could have done that. And then he grabs the canvas and flips it over. And when it's flipped upside down, it reveals this portrait of Bruce Lee. And you go, whoa, that was cool. And of course, it's been reproduced now over and over and over in different times and different venues. But it was cool, not because the Bruce Lee painting was that awesome or because Bruce Lee is awesome, though he's kind of awesome. It was, it was awesome because you're, you're, you're looking at that painter thinking, that was really cool. I wish I could do that. But then you have somebody like Bob Ross. How many of you know who Bob Ross is? Excellent. Bob Ross, for many years on TV, taught us the joy of painting. And there was no big reveal. There was no shock and awe moment. He would gently and kindly help you sketch out what you were going to paint. He would help you select your colors. You'd paint the happy little trees along the way. And we loved him not because the painting was brilliant, not necessarily because he was brilliant, but because he taught us the joy of painting. So it's my hope this morning that as we look at a familiar passage, that you're not in awe of me as the speaker, or necessarily of the painting itself, but that you find joy in the painting. You find joy in the reading of God's word. What we're going to do this morning is look at a passage, and instead of the awe moment at the end, I'm going to tell you what I want you to know in the beginning. And then I'm going to help you to draw and paint the happy little trees as we go along. I'm going to start at the end with my conclusion. And to do that, I'm going to go to John 10, because that's logical. You're going to teach Psalm 23, so you rush to the New Testament and speak something from there. John 10, verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. What does it mean, though, for Christ to be the good shepherd? John 10 has a lot to say about it, but we're not here to talk about John 10 necessarily this morning. And the hearers of the words from Christ in John 10 would have had a context for that that I don't have, and probably many of you don't have either. We're actually coming into this conversation in the middle. And I'm not talking about John 10. Yes, there's other context in John 10. 
but the middle that I'm talking about goes all the way back to what it means to be a shepherd. For us to understand what it means to be the good shepherd, we have to understand what it means to be a shepherd. Fortunately, David wrote us something of a handbook on this topic, both of being a shepherd and what it means for God to be a shepherd. That psalm, this morning's text, Psalm 23, begins with David's statement that the Lord is my shepherd. As a brother looking over this passage and my notes earlier this week pointed out to me, the Old Testament is chiefly about God, about Yahweh, and for us to know that he exists and what he's like. Psalm 23 is no exception. When David wrote it, he was writing about Yahweh. He was writing about his God. Yet Colossians 1:19 tells us that in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. So as we learn who Yahweh is, we learn who Christ is and what he fulfills. Christ's statement in John 10:11 is not a statement in isolation. I believe that it's the continuation of a conversation that started all the way back in the Old Testament and in Psalm 23. So to be clear, it's my conclusion, the painting that we're going to draw, the outline that I want for you, is that Christ as the good shepherd is the fulfillment of David's portrayal of the Lord in Psalm 23. I'd like to begin with a reading of the text, and that is, is as it is a reading about farming, we chose a redneck to do the reading for us. So yeah, you can crank up, this is the second service, you can crank up the hick and just let it come on out of you, brother. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> so as we start to look at it, before we even dig into the text, there's going to be a line right before that in most of your Bibles that says a psalm of David. And before we go into it, I think it's worth noting who wrote this psalm. Why is it important? I'm glad you asked. Isn't all of Scripture inspired by God? Isn't he the author of all of it? Why does it matter who wrote this psalm? And it's true, 2 Timothy tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God. It is all his words. But in Peter 2, verses, chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God chose authors, many of whom we know, and whose names are associated with the works we read in the Bible written by them. This particular psalm, I think, is a great example of why he chose to do that and why it matters. Who wrote this psalm? David wrote this psalm. Why does it matter? Well, it's a psalm about shepherding. Yes, this is the David who was king. This is the David who famously slew a giant 
But before he did either of those things, he was a shepherd. In fact, he had to be brought in from the pastures with his sheep to be anointed king when he was just a boy. David wasn't just familiar with shepherding and its tenants. David was a shepherd. And this psalm and the words in it have great meaning to him as a result of that. I believe God chose David to write these words because of who he was and his experience. So are they God's words? Yes. Are they David's words? Yes. Truly one of the beautiful parts of Scripture and of how God uses his people even today is that he works in and through us. He worked in and through David to write these words, but didn't exclude David from the process. He used David and who he was. Now on to the passage. The passage begins, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David the shepherd knew that the primary job of a shepherd was to care for his sheep, was to meet the needs of those sheep, to keep them alive and well. That was their primary job. Now I'm no expert on shepherding, but that much I think I could have glommed onto. But David the king knew that he needed God to supply his needs. There's a problem, though, in the way we read this in English. It usually ends with the word want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Did David imply by this that we get everything that we want? And having God as our shepherd means that we will never desire things. I want a million dollars. I don't have a million dollars. David wanted desperately to build the temple. That was what he wanted to see the culmination of his work be. And yet God said no. So does that mean that, that David was wrong and that God wouldn't provide for him? Or that, that God wasn't his shepherd or mine? No, it meant that this passage tells us that God will provide for our needs and that he will meet those needs in our lives, not necessarily our every whim. It wasn't the shepherd's job to meet every whim of the sheep. It was their job to keep them alive and provided for. So how does Christ fulfill this promise? Like David, we'll use the rest of this psalm to, to expound about how the shepherd meets the needs of the sheep, but in John 10, just before the passage I read earlier, we read that Christ came so that we might have abundant life. As our good shepherd, Christ provides everything we need to have that abundant life, to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, what does that phrase mean? Sorry, that's another sermon you have to come back for on a different day, but if you want to go talk to James, James can tell you all about it. Lacking in nothing. We won't lack, but you might have some wants. He goes on, and he writes verse 2, and he says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. As a disclaimer, much about this sermon is going to talk about shepherding in a familiar way, as though I am a shepherd. Let's be clear, I am not a shepherd. My exposure to sheep is probably a petting zoo. I don't eat a lot of lamb, and I don't wear wool because I live in Phoenix. So I, most of this is secondhand knowledge, but at the end of the day, it's about shepherding because other people are shepherds and no sheep, and David is one of those people. At first reading, why do shepherds take sheep to green pastures? Well, I'm no expert on sheep, but I know they eat grass. So there, that's, that's simple, right? He takes us to where there are things that we need. He's a shepherd. He feeds us. Okay. 
But David as shepherd knew something about sheep that I didn't know about sheep. And that is sheep won't lie down unless they're comfortable and safe. In fact, sheep will walk themselves to death. They will refuse to lie down and rest if they feel uncomfortable or uneasy. They will die of dehydration, of malnourishment, of exhaustion, of exposure, all because they won't lay down. And David knew this about the sheep. So what allowed the sheep to rest? Well, what allowed the sheep to rest was the safety of a shepherd who they knew provided for them, cared for them, and protected them. So David the shepherd knew that that's what it took for sheep to rest. David the king, who lived in a time of of political tumult and trouble and war, would have needed rest. And he knew that the only way for him to rest comfortably was to know that his shepherd provided for him safety and care. How then does Christ fulfill this promise? Well, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened, I'm sorry, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How much in the modern age, when your value is what you can produce and what you can do today, do we need to hear, come to me, my yoke is easy. Christ calls us to himself, to unite us to himself and to the Father, the sources of true rest and Sabbath. He relieves us of our toil and invites us to join him in reconciliation with the one true God. The second half of verse 2, David the shepherd goes on, he leads me beside still waters. Again, advanced shepherding knowledge, sheep need water. Shocking, right? I would have known that. You give me a sheep, I would have known that it was going to need water at some point. What I wouldn't have known, and what David the shepherd would have known, is that sheep will not drink from moving water. Apparently, it just freaks them out. Rumor has it they can't swim and they're afraid to drown. Sheep will die of dehydration mere inches from cool, clean, running water because they won't drink from moving water. So David the shepherd knew that sheep don't just need water. He knew that they needed water that was still. David the king would have experienced a God who met him where he was, over and over and over in unique circumstances with unique needs. If we go back and we can get over the bizarreness of this statement, and it isn't the most bizarre thing we're going to learn about sheep today, so hold on. I can see the beauty of Christ as my good shepherd. If I go back to John 10, just a few verses later, verses 14 to 15, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Just as I know the Father and the Father knows me. This is is the Trinity. This is the image of a God and a Christ who were inseparably one and who knew each other fully. And he says, just as I know the Father and the Father knows me, I know you. Christ didn't just know us like I know sheep. I know sheep need grass and water. 
Christ knows us like the good shepherd knows us. He knows not only our basic needs, but unlike the hired hands and the false shepherds that he denounces earlier in John 10, he can discern not only my needs, but how I will receive them and stays to make sure that they are met. Verse 3, David the shepherd goes on and says, he restores my soul. Now, many of you know that I'm in seminary. I worked through Hebrew this last year. That was an entirely new challenge. I think at one point someone calls it, called it Atlantean because it looks rather bizarre. One of the things I had to do is memorize Psalm 23 in Hebrew. Don't worry, I will spare you the immensely gringo recitation of Hebrew 23 in Hebrew, but it led me to an understanding of some words. Not that I look now at my English scripture and think, oh, this is just wrong, I wish they'd done this differently. No, it just led me to understand some of those words differently. And this word restore, he restores my soul, is one of those words that I see differently. What do you think of when you hear the word restore? My wife, Danny, worked with VBS this week, and she had an inflatable palm tree that was about six feet tall, and you got it all blown up, and while it was still sort of a crappy plastic palm tree, it was an adorable, <laughs> terrible plastic palm tree. But if you give it about two hours, it, it, it started to fade, and by the morning after, it was, it was no longer a, a wonderful plastic palm tree. So you go to it, and you open the valve, and you blow a few puffs of air into it, and all of a sudden, it's restored, right? It's back to six feet. It's still plastic, but it's a beautiful palm tree, and it worked wonderfully for what we had. And it was restored. So that's what I think of. A while back, there was a show on TV called American Restoration, where people would bring in the most random 50, 60, 100-year-old mechanical things that rusted, and they just looked like garbage. And these guys would go, oh, that's so cool. I remember those. And they would tear it apart. They would fix it. They would fabricate parts for it. They would paint it. They would put it back together. And they would walk out of the shop with what was once a rusted out piece of garbage and now looks like this beautiful new 60-year-old fill-in-the-blank. And it was amazing to see them restore things from seemingly nothing. Those are things I think of when I hear the word restore. And yet, the word here is more like to turn or to return. Restore is not a bad gloss for it, but but that's because I don't know sheep. David the shepherd knew sheep. And he knew that sheep, when flipped over on their back, cannot right themselves. Like a turtle, they lay on their back, and I have to resist the temptation to lay on the ground for you and do this. They lay on their back, flailing their arms and legs, not able to stand back on their feet. And it takes a shepherd to pick them up, put them back on their feet, to return them to their feet. And David, the shepherd, would have known this. David, the king, who is known for some of the most spectacular failures in all of Scripture, would have known this as well as anyone else, too. That, that the Lord, as his shepherd, had to, on more than a few occasions, pick him up and put him back on his feet and set him down the path again. How does Christ fulfill this promise to restore? I'm not sure if David could have understood at the time of this writing how Christ would one day fulfill this and how significant that would be. And yet this is the central work of Christ. If we look at John 5.24, Christ himself says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Through his actions on the cross, Christ took the sins of men and gave them his righteousness. He took souls which were hopelessly lost and separated from God, doomed to destruction, and stood them back on their feet and made them right with God. This is central to what Christ did for us as his people. He restores us, but he doesn't just fill us back full of air. He changes us fundamentally from dead to alive. Later in verse 3, David the shepherd says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. David the shepherd knew that one of the chief responsibilities of a shepherd was to move sheep from one place to another. They needed to be moved regularly for the sake of pastures and water. And the geography of Israel meant that there were paths that were safe and there were paths that were less safe, where a flock could be decimated. He understood as the king that he needed to be led in right ways and not wrong ways. Similarly, Christ leads his sheep in right ways and not into sin. But at the end of the day, I don't think that is the most meaningful piece of this particular passage. He says... He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Why do shepherds care for their flocks? David the shepherd would have understood that that flock represented his family's wealth. It represented his family's livelihood. And if you were to abandon those sheep and walk away, they would be destroyed or lost, and along with it, the livelihood and wealth of the family. That's why they risked their lives. That's why they tended flock 24 hours a day, seven days a week, instead of observing the Sabbath and doing those other things that would have made them socially acceptable. They don't do it out of charity or sympathy for the sheep. And while I'm certain you grow to love sheep if you raise them, those of you who are involved in agriculture and farming know that to get too attached to something that you will one day eat is maybe a bad plan. So was it out of love for the sheep? No, it was was out of their own wealth. Why then does God care for his sheep? Why did God care for David? Why does does Christ care for us? Do they need us for their wealth, for for their livelihood? God existed eternally before we came on the scene. He does not need you. He does not need me. I am not the central character of Scripture. At the end of the day, this scripture tells us he does it for his name's sake. We bear his name just as Israel was his chosen people. If you go back to Ezekiel, you see that God protects his name from being profaned by the nations, both in its protection, in his protection of Israel, and in his discipline of Israel. At the end of the day, it was not just the well-being of that people, but it was his faithfulness that protected his reputation. How then does Christ fulfill this promise? Well, Christ provides for, protects, and disciplines the people who bear his name for his reputation. Ephesians 3 tells us that it is for the church that he protects them so that they can be a witness to the nations and to the witnesses in the heavens. We exist to bring glory to God throughout all of creation. 
And Christ is here so that we could become his bride and become that for him. David the shepherd writes verse 4. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. In the process of moving flocks, especially from low elevations to high elevations during different seasons of the year where there would be grass and favorable climates and water, you had to move through the mountains. And in the process of moving through the mountains, there were, there were bottlenecks. There were places where it was the only passable way from one place to another. And many of them were valleys, places where the mountains came down far enough for you to take you and your flock through. I have no doubt that as, as David the shepherd penned these words, he had a few of these places thick in his memory. And he remembers the hair standing on his neck and the prayers of protection that went out from him as he began through these spaces where, where predators knew that he would have to pass and that other shepherds would have to pass. Human predators and, and animal predators who would kill and destroy. I have no doubt that there were places that, that stuck with him. And yet the sheep followed him through these terrifying places. Why? Why would sheep go through these places where they were bound to be attacked? They went through these places because the shepherd went before them, because David the shepherd knew the dangers and was prepared for them and passed through them with the sheep. David the king would have known plenty of dark valleys, plenty of seasons where he was in danger and surrounded by enemies. And yet he proceeded with his armies and proceeded with the nation of Israel knowing that God went before him and protected him. How then does Christ fulfill this promise? The preacher in Hebrews, in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus the shepherd went before us through all of our dark valleys he has experienced those places and knows the dangers. Jesus, our shepherd, goes with us as we attend those dark valleys in our lives. He offers us help and protection, and he is greater than anything we will encounter in those dark places. Furthermore, David the shepherd knew when the shepherd went into those places, he did not go unequipped. The next half of verse 4 says, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Shepherds carried two primary tools with them at this time in history. They carried a staff, which you have all seen in every nativity set that has ever been erected. It's taller than a man, hook on the end, thin. Usually Joseph's holding it. I don't really know why Joseph's holding it. The shepherds should be, but it's what it is. He carries that staff. That staff extends the reach of the shepherd for the purpose of keeping and gathering his sheep. As they walk, he can use it to bring sheep in. It's a lot easier to bring a sheep in who's starting to wander than to go find one once it has left the building. 
when the sheep did wander off and leave and get itself into trouble in unfortunate circumstances, the, the, the staff would be used to extend the reach of the shepherd to retrieve the sheep. Mind you, by hooking its neck and dragging it out by its head, which doesn't sound particularly comfortable, and if any of you have wandered any distance, that's how he's probably going to bring you back, so enjoy that. But he had that to extend his reach to keep his sheep with him. The other tool was a rod. The rod was much shorter, 12 to 24 inches. Big knob on one end, probably made of root or burl wood, resembled a hammer, both in its appearance and in its use. Now, not to hammer tent stakes, because that wasn't really what was going on, but ultimately to extend the reach of the shepherd for the purpose of protecting his flock. It could be thrown or swung to fight off predators. David might have carried a sling instead. He was apparently good with one of those. Other stories come to mind. But he would have known well what that tool was for. Part of what that tool was for also was discipline. Sheep will follow a shepherd. Sheep will follow sheep. And if you have a sheep who is disruptive and troublesome, it will create groups of troublesome and disruptive sheep. And there were times when the discipline had to come to the sheep. And sick and dying sheep and disruptive sheep were dispatched for the purpose of protecting the flock. David knew what that was for. And yet he says, your staff and your rod, they comfort me. Not you comfort me, they comfort me. Those two tools, knowing full well that one is for my protection and my care and the other is for violence and discipline and wrath, they comfort me. How then does Christ fulfill this promise? He is both our salvation and our judgment. He is both here to bring us into his flock and to pronounce judgment where it's necessary. The world would tell you that that's not what Jesus is about, but Jesus does both of those things. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him for that purpose. Then we go on to verse 5, and David says, You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. We're talking about sheep. We're over here in the fields. Now we're at a banquet. No, there's no story here about sheep. how sheep sometimes eat at tables, I promise. This is, this is a thing with, with Hebrew poetry, where we bring in a parallel to make a point more fully. Furthermore, I can see from David's perspective, he has this vision of these dark places that he had to pass through as a child with his sheep, where he knew there was danger, it's very easy for me to see how he goes from that image to a table set in the presence of his enemies. He had very real enemies. These weren't the enemies where he called me this and I called him that and now we're not friends anymore. These were people who wanted to see him and the nation of Israel destroyed. And yet you have David sitting at a table with them peacefully safely protected. What would it mean for you to sit at a table with people who want to destroy you? Furthermore, there's an image in Jeremiah and Isaiah about a table being set for Babylon where they're allowed to eat and drink and grow merry before God destroys them for the protection of his people. Because David knew David the king knew 
that ultimately God would see the protection of Israel done. And that he needn't fear his enemies, and he knew that eventually his enemies would be destroyed. Verse 5 goes on with more covenantal language about how God will protect his people. He says, you anoint my head with oil. This one has some fun allusions to shepherding and to banquets. Shepherding, sheep in this time were often oil was placed on their head to keep flies from eating their eyes and nose. Delicious, right? Continuing the banquet theme, something even more lovely. As people were invited to banquets at this time in history, since, since personal hygiene was different at this time in history, it was customary to anoint with aromatic oils the people who would come into your home so that as they sat next to other people around your table, the experience might be more pleasant than it would otherwise have been. And yet, this image of anointing has more layers. David the king became the king by what? By God's anointing. He was called in from the fields as a boy and anointed as the future king, which is yet one more of the just super bizarre stories of how God chose to see his nation cared for. The priests were anointed. There were people who had to have been anointed to fulfill those roles. We as a nation of priests have been anointed. David understood that his role in his kingdom was there by God's anointing. Christ, ultimately, is referred to as the anointed one by Daniel. The one who would be the ultimate fulfillment, both the covenant keeper and the covenant enforcer. And that he would come with God's anointing. The last piece of verse 5 is my cup overflows. Certainly there's a simple analogy here of abundance, right? David has a cup on this imaginary banquet table and it's not just full, it's overflowing. David says in Psalm 16:5 that the Lord is his chosen portion and his cup. David understood that he was being provided for as king in ways beyond his deserving and beyond measure. And he recognizes that when he writes this. But there's more here still. You have all of this covenantal language about God's promise to protect from his enemies and to anoint his people and to provide in abundance for his people. How does Christ fulfill these covenantal promises? In the end, we see Christ sitting at a banquet table with his very real enemy. Someone who would betray him and hand him over to be killed. And in that time, Luke 22 records that he says, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Not only did Christ provide a cup that is overflowing, and provided that cup as the fulfillment of covenant and the future covenant, he filled that cup with his own blood, with his own substance. And every time we come together as a church and celebrate the Last Supper, we're being reminded of that covenant of promise. We're being reminded of how Christ filled that cup with himself. The last verse, verse 6, 
David the shepherd says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. The word here for mercy is, is, a, is a different word than we read mercy. We read Psalm 33 earlier, and we read steadfast love. And I think steadfast love is a better translation than mercy here. It's a covenantal love that follows us, that doesn't leave us. It's the kind of love that we're all looking for in our spouses and in our families and in our friends. It's the kind of love that only God can truly provide. Furthermore, he says that it follows us. Now, I can tell you as a parent of four children, what follows me is usually some amount of mess and destruction. I have great kids, but I have four kids, and man, they can destroy a place. We leave them at grandma's house for a few hours, and then we have to spend 30 minutes cleaning the house because we've gotten out everything in the building. And a boat leaves a wake that follows it. As the boat travels through the water, it it leaves a wake behind. But goodness and mercy, goodness and steadfast love do not follow David as a mess follows my family or as a wake follows a boat. The word here would be better translated pursue or chase. Yes, there's still a similar meaning. That's why there's nothing wrong with the English. But, But to be chased by goodness and steadfast love, to be pursued by them is different than for them to simply be somewhere behind me. They're coming for me. How does Christ fulfill this promise? Christ is the good shepherd. In the closing of the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15, 7 says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus is the good shepherd who does not follow me to watch where I'm going, does not follow me because I'm a wonderful person. He is the one who pursues me when I am lost. He is the one who pursues me when I need to repent. He is the one who pursues the lost so that they might become part of his flock. It is because of him that goodness and mercy and steadfast love follow me, not because of me. Then the last half of the last verse, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's funny here because the word dwell is the same word that we saw earlier in the passage for return, right? The flipping over of the sheep. This didn't make sense to me. And and in fairness, lots of words have multiple meanings. We have lots of those words in English that mean two completely unrelated things. And yet in this case, I don't know that they're so unrelated. What does it mean to live somewhere? Well, ultimately it means that, that that's the place I come back to. That I go out, I don't stay there, I go out and I come back. Jesus says as much in John 10 again when he states that he is the door and the sheep will go in and out and find pasture. Similarly, what does it mean to be homeless? What does it mean to be without a home? It doesn't mean that there's never anywhere that you stay. What it means is that there's not a place that you return to after you've gone out. There's not a place that is yours to come back to. So to say that I return to the house of the Lord forever is to say that I live there, that that's my home. And yet, I thought we were talking about sheep. And no, there's not another weird sheep thing here. I'm all done with the weird sheep things where where they sometimes come inside and live inside, right? Hopefully you have enough sheep that they don't fit inside your little house or your tent, or your whatever. 
So how did, we, how did we get to dwelling inside the house of the Lord? The beauty of this closing passage is that David understands that he ceases to be a sheep, that he ceases to be a pet, he ceases to be a possession, that he's invited by God to live with him, that he's invited to be a member of his household. David is the shepherd would have understood that that's not something that sheep do. David as the king would have longed for a day when he could rest in the father's home. How does Christ fulfill this promise? In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Then verse 11, in him we have tained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The end result of Christ's shepherding is not happy, well-fed sheep. The end result of Christ's shepherding is adoption as sons and daughters, as adoptions as heirs of the goodness and glory of God. We're invited not to live as pets forever, not to sit here and be well-fed and happy, but to be heirs of his household, working for him, serving him, honoring him. Christ is the good shepherd that he claims to be in John 10. He is the fulfillment of what David describes in Psalm 23. He is the good shepherd who provides for our needs. He is the good shepherd who gives us rest. He is the good shepherd who brings us from death into life. He is the good shepherd who serves not our undeserved glory or benefit, but his own deserved glory. He's the good shepherd who went before us and protects us as we go. He is the good shepherd who is true to his covenant promises with us. He is the good shepherd who pursues us with goodness and love. He is the good shepherd who makes it possible for us to become sons and daughters and heirs of the king. So now what do I do with this? What's the application, right? One of the trappings of, of formalized theology is, well, everything has to have a now go and do this. And as, the, as the, the teacher, I want to send you out to do something so that I can witness that my sermon was heard and I know that it, it landed and I did my job. But if I'm being true to the text, I don't think David wrote these words so that people would go and do a thing. He wrote these words out of an abundance of love for who God was to him. He wrote these words not with go, therefore, and do implications, but that they would be sung and repeated and that God's glory would be known and worshipped. So what is it that we can do with it? Well, for starters, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your good shepherd, or if you know Christ but you haven't experienced him in these ways, I pray that you would seek out myself or an elder, or a brother and sister who has. 
and who can lead you along a path of reading scripture and prayer and worship to get to know him and recognize him as your good shepherd and experience him in these ways. If you are a believer and you've had the experience of Christ in these ways, I hope that these passages have new beauty, have new new depth and new dimension and new flesh, not ultimately so that you can think, wow, Nick's awesome, but so you can love the joy of painting, so that you can love the joy of reading these scriptures and knowing who God is a little bit better and the beauty of how he put together his scriptures. I hope that you can read these passages and ultimately give praise and honor and glory back to a deserving, beautiful, good shepherd. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, you are truly the good shepherd. You have led us down paths, Lord, that we would never have traveled ourselves. You have protected us in darkness. You have disciplined us, Lord. You have cared for us, and you know us. And Lord, you call us back to yourself. I pray ultimately, Lord, that you would continue to work in my life and those of others, that you would impress upon us just how good and wonderful a shepherd you are, Lord, that we might be your witnesses to all the world and to those around us. Thank you, Father, for your care and for your adoption of sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen.